Hello, everyone, and welcome to Staffer, the show about people who have worked in government or politics and where their journeys take them. I'm your host, Jim Papa, a partner at Global Strategy Group and a former staffer myself. Our guest this week is Alfonso David. Alfonso is the president of the Human Rights Campaign, the country's premier advocacy organization fighting for LGBTQ rights. As you'll hear, he has an incredible life story. His time as a staffer began when he joined the New York State Division of Human Rights as deputy commissioner. What followed was a successful career to the highest levels of New York State government. He next worked for then Attorney General Andrew Cuomo and ultimately served in Governor Cuomo's inner circle as counsel. Alfonso and I talked on Monday, November 23rd, virtually given the circumstances. I hope you enjoy the conversation. Alfonso David, welcome to Staffer. Thank you. Thank you so much, Jen. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'm so excited to be talking with you today. Um, I like to start these interviews at the very beginning. And you have really one of the most incredible early life stories that I've ever read about. Uh, You were born in Silver Spring, Maryland. But at the age of one, you moved to Liberia because you had family connections there. And I'm wondering if you could share for our listeners what happened during that period of time and why you moved there and why you came back? Sure. Um, So as you said, I was born in Silver Spring, Maryland, and my parents were in the United States for school. They were finishing their undergraduate studies. Uh, My father originally at Georgetown and then Howard and my mother went to school in Virginia. And once they finished their studies, they had always intended to return back to Liberia. Uh, During the course of finishing their studies, I was born and my parents left along with uh, my my older brother and myself uh, and went back to Liberia. And my father uh, was finishing up his master's uh, when he, I think, made the decision he wanted to run for office. He ran for office as the first elected mayor of uh, Liberia and he won. My uncle also ran for office and he was elected president of Liberia. So this was during the 1970s, and I lived a fairly privileged existence during that time. And that all changed abruptly in uh, 1980 when there was a military coup, and my uncle was assassinated and my father was put in prison, and we were placed under house arrest. And that period lasted for about three years. Uh, My father was in prison for 18 months, and once he was released, uh, he sought to uh, he sought asylum here in the, the United States based on political persecution. Uh, was initially faced significant obstacles uh, re-entering the country. Uh, as many people may recall, this was a shift in administration from the Carter administration to the Reagan administration, and he faced some obstacles. We ultimately got back to the U.S. and he sought asylum uh, in in the U.S. I wish you could take me to that time when you were a youngster, but you were living under house arrest. That must have been very stressful, terrifying, in fact, for a little kid. Um, Could you describe what that was like? And particularly, because I've read a bit about it, about what you observed um, among the women in your life at that time. Yeah, uh, I, I mean, my experience was so harrowing that uh, going back and regurgitating it, uh, it, it's still it's as visceral as it was yesterday or the day before or the year before. And um, I saw things as a child that I would not 
um, I would not wish on anyone. Uh, I saw, you know, women attacked and raped. I saw heads exploding. I saw people murdered. And as a child, when you go through a military coup, uh, you have very little understanding as to what that means or the reasons why that's happening. And you also don't really fully appreciate what the levers are associated with democracy and dictatorships. And I had to come to terms with those fairly quickly. The women in my life at the time uh, became the warriors because the men were either assassinated uh, or in prison. And so I grew up for those three years in a house full of women, women who were strong, uh, matriarchs, uh, protected the family from harm, uh, and provided, which is incredibly important, provided for the family when there were very, very few resources to do that. Um, and my mother was one of them, where she protected our family uh, with a strength that I associated with, you know, David or, you know, depending on your perspective, Goliath. Um, but uh, it was really a fascinating, harrowing experience that I think shaped a, a number of uh, things uh, for me in terms of how I see the world, how I perceive democracy, how I see our respective roles in, in, uh, in life and what we're supposed to do when we're on this, on this planet. Yeah, you... You know, for someone who saw um, you know, relatives in public life have such challenges and heartbreak and, and, and pay with their lives, and yet you, as a young adult, decided to get into public service. Um, how did you come to that? Well, I didn't actually uh, gravitate towards public service. After the coup, I either made a tacit you know, determination or it must have been much more active than I realized. But I made some type of determination that I would not go into government uh, because I saw government as uh, being either directly or indirectly responsible for the turmoil in my family's life. And I also saw the corruption uh, that we've seen around the world in instances where dictators uh, use their power for personal gain and certainly not for the benefit of the general population. So when I came to the United States, I knew that I was shifting from medicine to law. Medicine was my identified course. Uh, when I was a child, I was going to become a surgeon. And after the war, that shifted to, to law. And I initially entered, uh, I, I clerked for a federal judge, and that was an incredible experience. Uh, working on opinions uh, on a variety of issues from, you know, uh, corporation suing uh, for intellectual property rights to, uh, you know, inmates uh, in, in local jails and prisons that were alleging discrimination and harm and violation of constitutional rights. So I worked on those matters for a year and then joined a commercial law firm and I litigated cases uh, from contract disputes to labor issues for two years and then ran a company. And I was not intending on going into government, except I'd spent three years litigating the marriage equality case in New York. And we had fought, um, I think, valiantly 
and unfortunately lost the case at the high court. And after that experience of spending three years of my life fighting for marginalized communities, LGBTQ people to have uh, what I consider to be a fundamental right. So you can marry the person of your choice. And after losing that, I made a decision to go into government. Uh, I was recruited into government, but I decided to go into government because I thought I could have a significant impact. You can fight from the outside and you can also fight in, in, internally to advance social justice. And I thought I could do that uh, within the, the Cuomo administration, which is what I ultimately ended up doing. Yeah. So in 2007, you uh, left Lambda Legal Defense, an educational fund, as I understand it, to go into the New York State Division of Human Rights as Deputy Commissioner for Operations and Special Counselor to the Commissioner. This was your first uh, experience as a staffer. You subsequently had a very long and successful career in state government, which we're going to talk about. Um, after just one year in that role, you became Special Deputy Attorney General for Civil Rights in the office of then Attorney General Andrew Cuomo. Um, I have to ask you um, about Andrew Cuomo because he is so hard-charging. He is so high-profile. Uh, what makes succeeding for Governor Cuomo, what, you know, what are the attributes for a staffer to succeed when working <laughs> for Andrew Cuomo? Uh, there are a number of different adjectives that I could, I could uh, highlight for you. Um, he is looking for professionals who are incredibly well-versed and prepared in whatever discipline they're operating in. He's also looking for people who can perform. Uh, he is not interested in uh, people who will pontificate. Uh, he's interested in action and he's interested in performance. Uh, and it's not only performing to perform, it's excelling when you perform. And I, like working in those types of environments because uh, some people forget, but government is a service business. You are in service of the people who elect you or appoint you to positions of power. And we all pay taxes, uh, or at least hopefully most of us pay taxes. And those taxes go to support the infrastructure of government. And when you work in government, your responsibility is to make sure that you are performing and delivering for your constituents. And Governor Cuomo is driven by that principle, uh, principle of performance, the principle of excellence uh, in all of his staffers, uh, because he understands the fundamental premise that undergirds uh, anyone going into government, and that is you are providing a service uh, to people who elected you to perform. You know, and you've put your finger on something uh, that is underappreciated about staffers, and that is expertise. When, when the you know public sees uh, either elected officials or people commenting about politics, it's often, say, on TV, and it's a snippet from a speech, or it's you know former staffers pontificating on the the latest uh, news in you know in sixty second, ninety second bites. But the entire operation of government is actually sustained by people who spend years becoming experts in an area so that they can inform the policymakers at the right time. It's incredibly important. I mean, and, and you walk into rooms uh, where you are expected to be the expert on 
not only the subject matter that uh, is the is the purpose of the meeting, but also any subject matter that could come up. Uh, he is uh, he places a premium on those who uh, have a wide breadth and scope of experience and expertise, and a deep knowledge of the issues that you are tasked with with implementing. Uh, so, uh, and I think you're right. It, it's a is a, a feature that sometimes people forget to focus on. This, the staffers behind the scenes are the ones who are responsible for making things work. And when I say making things work, we're making life and death decisions. We're making decisions that affect millions of people, and we have to get it right. Uh, and if you don't get it right, uh, you know, people could die. When we talk about the health pandemic, or we could talk about, you know, issues affecting uh, property rights or issue affecting relationship recognition. Uh, those are significant decisions that affect the day-to-day -day lives of people. And so staffers have to have a, a technical level of expertise and an ability to implement, right? It's not just only, I have this knowledge. Uh, you also have to have the skill set to implement uh, whatever, you know, the the task is at hand. Yeah. Well, um, Governor Cuomo was obviously uh, very impressed and, and relied upon you because uh, once he became governor, he asked you to serve in the role of counsel to the governor. This uh, put you in the position of advising him on um, legal and policy matters affecting the state, basically everything from proposed legislation to implementation of laws to litigation as I like to say in, in the parlance of, of, of being a staffer, this was, quote, a big job. <laughs> and, and, and the analogy here in Washington is White House counsel. And I read a description in Politico recently since President-elect Biden is naming his senior advisors. Uh, Politico recently described the, the counsel's job as more than just law. It is part of a broader mix that includes politics, policy, and communications. You were serving the governor in that same role. How did you approach those factors when advising your principal? <sighs> uh, that's a really difficult question to answer because um, being a successful counsel, as you just mentioned, requires that not only are you well-versed in a variety of areas of law, but you also have to be a very good policy advisor, a very good communicator, and a very good operational uh, professional, if you will. Uh, in my role as counsel to the governor, yes, I was responsible for providing legal advice on a variety of issues from legislation to litigation. And in fact, in many cases, handled those issues with very little uh, interference or input because there is an expectation that as counsel, you're making decisions with a well-rounded perspective as to how it affects not only the administration, but the state and potentially the nation. So I made a lot of those decisions knowing what I thought the governor would want and also fully appreciating some of the complexities of uh, you know, advancing a piece of legislation uh, and making modifications to that piece of legislation and the impact that it may have on multiple communities. So I did a lot of that, but also worked on communication strategy, developed, certainly developed policy, developed financial and substantive policy. 
and was responsible for interfacing with 97 state agencies and authorities throughout the state of New York. Wow. Uh, so that means 97 general counsels, 97 commissioners and uh, who oversee those agencies. And I'm sure you can anticipate what I'm about to say here, but almost every decision that a state agency makes has legal implications. Yeah. So I was intricately involved in all of the decisions that were being made. Certainly significant decisions were brought to my attention and I had 14 or so assistant counsels and they were tasked, uh, they were assigned to specific subject areas from public safety to health to civil rights. And, and they would be responsible for interfacing with those general counsels as well. I approached the job recognizing that I had to look at an issue from a variety of different angles and provide advice, appreciating how all of those different issues could intersect to ultimately provide my principal with the best legal advice possible. But in many cases, it was the best advice. Yes, there were legal implications associated with the advice, but there were political implications, there were policy considerations, there were legal implications. Uh, so when I made that determination and said, we should do X or we should do Y, uh, he expected that I had thought through all of those implications in advising him in the best way I thought possible. Well, of the massive scope uh, and the number of years that you played in this role, there um, were so many issues. But there's one I, I really want to talk to you about, and that is the Marriage Equality Act, which Governor Cuomo signed into law on June 24th, 2011, which was almost four years to the day before the Supreme Court ruled same-sex marriage constitutional in Obergefell. That law granted same-sex couples the freedom to marry, uh, but it also uh, provided hundreds of rights, benefits, protections that at that time had been limited to married couples of the opposite sex. You were the first African-American man and the first openly gay man to serve as chief counsel to the governor of New York. And you got to play a central, deeply meaningful role in a landmark civil rights law. Could you talk to us about that experience sort of the, the broad scale of what it took to get that law uh, passed and signed by the governor, and also what it felt like uh, the moment he signed it. <laughs> How much time do you have? <laughs> <laughs> uh, you're, the, you're the busy one. I'll take the time that you've got. This was an extraordinary, extraordinary experience uh, in thought leadership, in uh, negotiation and bill drafting. Uh, it was a piece of art. Um, I say that because we started the process immediately after the governor became governor in January of 2011. There was a team uh, really tasked with the, the responsibility of not only drafting the piece of legislation, but really thinking through the legislative and policy implications of advancing a bill at that time. So you may remember that at that time in New York, the legislature was controlled by Republican leadership. The assembly was controlled by Democrat leadership, Democratic leadership. Yep. And there was no consensus at that point when we started uh, to, with both houses to advance a piece of legislation to allow same-sex couples to marry. So in January of 2011, 
uh, I started the process along with uh, others who were working on it, Catherine Granger, Mylon Dinnerstein, and others, uh, were working on, on how we would develop a strategic plan for engaging with members of the legislature, engaging with members of the press, engaging with members of the public on why marriage equality was important. And then we had an additional hurdle of drafting the legislation. Some would say, well, that's fairly simple. You change the domestic relations law to say, you know, marriage is available to anyone regardless of the gender identity or sexual orientation. But unfortunately, we knew that in drafting that piece of legislation, we would face obstacles. And we had many. One of the most significant obstacles we faced uh, was a contention by some members of the Republican Senate that they wanted to include a provision in the piece of legislation that would have provided an exemption or an exception for anyone who is looking to provide services, uh, but that person feels that they can't provide those services to an LGBTQ couple because it would be offensive to their religious practices. And that was one of the most significant obstacles for us. They were looking to change the human rights law. So the human rights law would provide an exception for places of public accommodations uh, to essentially discriminate against same-sex couples. And that was deeply problematic to me as a black man and problematic to me as a gay man and also just as a civil rights lawyer because we would have been effectively eradicating the human rights law, which is the oldest human rights law in the country since 1945. So uh, there were these internal and personal pressures, as well as external pressures and expectations about what we could accomplish uh, with a Republican Senate. And so it required hours and hours and hours of negotiation. I don't think I slept for weeks uh, as we talked about how do you craft this piece of legislation where you achieve the balance uh, that some may be seeking without compromising fundamental civil rights? And we were able to do that in a very creative way. We were able to do that without compromising the civil rights of LGBTQ people or people of color. But it was, it was a heavy lift. And we also had to convince um, certain Republican senators to vote for this piece of legislation. And uh, thankfully, we were. The governor was incredibly persuasive in, in talking to many of these uh, Republican senators that it was an important piece of civil rights legislation. If you think about 2011, uh, prior to 2011, there were very few states that allow same-sex couples to marry. And those decisions had been made primarily through the courts. So we were effectively going through the legislature to allow same-sex couples to marry, which was not something that many other states had done. Um, and, and when I look back on that experience, uh, I look back on it fondly, uh, and also I realize and appreciate how significant an accomplishment it is under the, under the circumstances that we had to operate. Oh, absolutely. I remember it well, and I remember the politics of the time were extremely challenging. First, New York was being a leader in the field, but also, as folks remember, the Tea Party had just, you know, taken on the federal level, taken back uh, the House in, in the 2010 elections. So it was, I mean, complex for a lot of reasons that you laid out and politically extraordinarily challenging. Um, I, I'm wondering if you could take me to that moment when the governor signed it. 
mm-hmm. and what you were feeling at that time. I believe I was in my office in Albany and we were informed that the Senate had scheduled the vote. And so we went to the Senate, uh, Senate, uh, I forgot, the chambers, sorry. And the vote, and the senators voted for the bill. And uh, the lieutenant governor at the time was overseeing the proceedings. And uh, we all clapped and cheered uh, when the bill passed and then went back uh, to the second floor. The second floor is the executive chamber for the governor. And uh, I remember looking at the governor and talking to him and uh, really fully appreciating the gravity of that moment and the importance of that moment for same-sex couples, not only in New York, but around the country. And, and what it said to me, and I think the governor shared this view, is here is your government telling you that you have value. Here is your government saying that you have dignity, that your relationship is just as valuable as anyone else's relationship. And government is standing up for you. And I certainly felt that personally and based on the phone calls and the responses that I was receiving from friends and families and colleagues around the country, it it was incredibly significant. Uh, People sometimes forget that when marginalized communities are fighting for vindication or, you know, uh, for rights, I would just say generally, uh, at at its core, we're talking about, you know, the judiciary or the executive branch or the legislature effectively saying, yes, we see you and we assign value to you just like we would anyone else. And at its core, that's what it meant. And it was a deeply emotional experience going through that day, going through that moment of uh, seeing the governor sign the bill. And I think we ended up drinking champagne that night or something uh, and celebrating. And uh, the next day, literally the next day, I had to prepare for the implementation of the bill. Uh, The bill was drafted in a way where it had to be implemented in 30 days. So the next morning I woke up uh, and I focused on uh, training all of the clerks in the state of New York Uh, and making sure that all of the materials uh, were going to be prepared. We had to change the forms for marriage licenses. And we had to train every single clerk in the the state of New York uh, why those forms were being changed and answer questions. Uh, You know, clerks would say, well, I don't feel comfortable, um, you know, uh, authenticating a marriage between a same-sex couple. And we would have to say, well, it's, it's your job. You would have to do that. And if you don't want to perform that function, that's certainly fine. But um, your role as a government official would be to effectively perform that duty. But so for 30 days, I, I then went to phase two of implementing the law. And, and that's going back to what I said earlier, the importance of making sure uh, from the governor's perspective, that you have staffers, not only with the technical expertise, but the ability to implement. Because if you only have one and not the other, uh, it limits your ability to to advance policy. Well, and it is the hope of, I think, every staffer that they get the opportunity to work on an issue that is you know, integral to who they are, how they see the world, see it all the way through completion, despite the odds, um, 
But then, even after the climactic moment of signature, the real staffer gets up the next morning and begins implementation. That is, that is really uh, a staffer in a nutshell right there. Uh, because the movie ends after passage. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> That's when the movie ends. Uh, the yeah. staffers make it actually work then uh, the next morning. Well, your, your leadership has continued, uh, obviously. You today are the president of the Human Rights Campaign, the first civil rights lawyer and the first person of color to serve as president of the organization in its nearly 40-year history. Um, and I think it's fair to say that HRC, as it is known, is the preeminent organization fighting for LGBTQ rights in the country. Um, I was wondering if you could, uh, for our listeners, Describe the landscape for LGBTQ rights as you see it today. Because on the one hand, people may look and say, wow, look at the progress we've made since 2011. Um, you know, we, the, the Obergefell decision was critically important, not just in delivering legal rights, which it was essential for that, but also in helping the country move forward. Um, and Undoubtedly, there is there's more understanding, respect, appreciation legally and and otherwise than there than there was when you and I were kids. And while that may be true, on the other hand, the Supreme Court uh, no longer has the five four majority that held in Obergefell. Unfortunately, Justices Kennedy and Ginsburg are no longer there, replaced by Justices Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett. President Trump has filled federal judiciary uh, with 200 plus of his nominees. And across the country, there are new and ugly and creative attacks on LGBTQ people every day. So how do you see the landscape today? um, And how does HRC fit into that? Well, the landscape is complicated. Um, First, I'll say, and I'll acknowledge what you just uh, said as well, there has been significant progress over the past several years. Uh, I remember in early 2000s that the number of people who supported marriage equality was in the 30s, uh, 30%. Uh, It is now in excess of 70%, those who support marriage equality. So we have made significant advances in Uh, LGBTQ rights. However, there are many areas where we have either uh, seen the faces of regressive policies implemented through the uh, Trump-Pence administration or through local governments, and the implications are significant. So I'll give you a, a few data points that I think highlight for me the work that we still have yet to do. Uh, In 29 states in this country, There are no comprehensive protections for LGBTQ people. So you ask, well, what does that mean? What that means is in 29 states in this country, LGBTQ people could be discriminated against and they would have absolutely no recourse in many cases under state or federal law. Uh, So you say, well, the Bostock decision recently issued by the Supreme Court says employers can't discriminate against LGBTQ people, and that's true. The the Trump administration has failed to implement that decision, but even assuming that decision is being implemented, there are many areas where LGBTQ people have absolutely no protection. And I'll give you an example, public accommodation, or better yet, retail stores. 
Uh, as a black man or as a gay man, if I walked into a Saks Fifth Avenue or to a Bloomingdale's or to a Gap department store uh, to purchase a pair of jeans and I face discrimination, I have no recourse under federal law. There's no federal law that prohibits discrimination against LGBTQ people in retail establishments. And for that matter, for people of color. And so we are pushing for the Equality Act. The Equality Act would provide comprehensive protections to LGBTQ people because it doesn't exist today. Another important data point is even though we are seeing greater and greater visibility of LGBTQ people, we're also seeing increased rates of violence. Uh, this year, 2020, we have more transgender and gender nonconforming people who have been killed in this country at least 37 that we know of, and primarily Black and Latinx transgender women of color. They've been killed for being who they are. So we unfortunately are now seeing the impact of stigma and how stigma effectively leads to violence. And we have to do something significant culturally, socially, and legally to protect the members of the trans community. Uh, third is in many states, we're seeing conversion therapy statutes um, that are either struck down or uh, allowed to, allowed to um, function in, in states around the country. Conversion therapy effectively allows medical professionals to engage in shock therapy to try to change LGBTQ kids, uh. which is uh, not real science, but nevertheless... Uh, is allowed in many parts of the country. So those are three data points that highlight the work that we have to do. We've been able to advance significant, positive, inclusive policies in places like New York and California, but in many other parts of the country, LGBTQ people are living in a state of fear. And from my perch as the president of the Human Rights Campaign, I feel that it's my responsibility for us to make sure that we're protecting those marginalized communities uh, that are not, you know, living in progressive cities where they have local laws that protect them. And what do you think are the biggest impediments to success? I think the most significant impediment to success is the inability uh, or the failure to see beyond ourselves. Uh, I gave a speech last year about the importance of our community being broadly defined to see beyond ourselves. Can we advocate for policies that don't directly affect us? Can we understand and appreciate that certain policies are going to benefit our community? It may not necessarily benefit us personally. I think we've gotten to the point where policy is driven by the self. And unfortunately, when you're talking about the other, when you're talking about LGBTQ people, when you're talking about marginalized communities who you may not have direct contact with, it's very easy to ignore, is very easy to disregard, is very easy to treat with a level of indifference. And that, I believe, is our biggest obstacle. And for the past four years, we have lived under an oppressive and regressive administration that has sought to further marginalize marginalized communities. So we now have to change that paradigm so that people see LGBTQ people as human beings. Yeah. I mean, when we talk about stigma leading to violence, uh, when LGBTQ people are attacked for who they are, 
it's because the attacker fails to see them as human beings. That's right. That is our most fundamental and significant obstacle in affecting real and sustainable change. You know, you mentioned the last four years, which have been um, excruciating. We are now about to turn the corner. We have President-elect Biden and and Vice President-elect Harris. What are you hoping uh, from their administration? Well, the Human Rights Campaign recently issued a blueprint for positive change. The blueprint includes 85 administrative policy recommendations for the Biden-Harris administration. And they range from creating an interagency task force to address the violence that's affecting the transgender community to passing the Equality Act, which would, as I said before, provide comprehensive protections for LGBTQ people. Um, In addition to advancing legislation and regulations and policy to positively affect marginalized communities, including LGBTQ people, what I'm looking for at its core, and I know we're going to get this because both Joe Biden and Kamala Harris are pro-equality candidates, I'm looking for LGBTQ people, people of color, immigrants, marginalized communities to be treated with dignity. That's what I'm looking for. Yeah. And that will be a sea change because we haven't seen that in four years. We've yeah. seen the direct opposite. That's so right. I'm looking for them to treat communities with the dignity that they deserve without treating communities as pariahs, without undermining communities because of the color of their skin, because of who they love, because of where they come from. That's what I'm hoping this administration not only will do, but what will elevate through their policy, through their regulations, through their their narratives. Let me take it uh, back to you now and your leadership. Uh, you've been a staffer in government. You are now the principal, uh, and you have an organization filled with brilliant, hard-charging former staffers from government and politics but are working at HRC. I know many of them. Um, tell me, what do you want the people working at HRC, supporting your mission and you, what do you want them to be thinking about every day? For me, the most important thing for anyone working at HRC is to never forget to dream. And for me, that encapsulates the work. We are engaged in very, very difficult, uh, exhausting, very difficult, exhausting work. Uh, And we do a day in and day out. There's no, there's no clock, right? I I don't, I don't stop working at 9 p.m., right? Um, And most of the staffers don't either. Uh, So the challenge is when you do this work, uh, you run the risk of becoming despondent. You run the risk of seeing the obstacles more than the opportunities. And for me, the most important thing for anyone working at HRC is continue dreaming because through that paradigm, you will create policy, you will come up with ideas, you will think about new and creative ways to achieve the mission of the organization. And if you stop dreaming, we've lost. Oh, I love that. You know, I also read that a piece of advice that you give uh, staff is never forget your own capacity. What do you mean by yes. that? So I, I, I believe that, and this is... 
I think, I don't want to say primarily applicable to people of color and LGBTQ people and marginalized communities, but I'll, I'll, I'll attach it to a much broader net. I think as children, we all face obstacles. Someone tells us at some point during our childhood that we're not good enough, uh, that we can't achieve whatever we're looking to achieve. And we see that in many cases through the lens of people of color. We see that through the lens of LGBTQ people and other marginalized communities, people with disabilities, et cetera. And I tell my staff, please don't forget your capacity. I say that because in some cases, people have stopped asking what their true capacity is because they have either internalized the negative responses from decades ago, from years ago, that indirectly, or in some cases quite directly affects their ability to succeed today. Mm -hmm. So by asking the staff to really rethink and take a step back and really assess your capacity, what is your capacity? Have you had that conversation with yourself? What are you capable of doing? And by asking that question and having them go through that exercise, they're able to open a new window that they may not have seen before. Because I don't want anyone working at the organization to see themselves through someone else's limitations. I want them to understand and appreciate their capacity because by doing so, we will then really tap into all of the opportunities that exist. Oh, I love that. Uh, both such great observations and pieces of wisdom. Um, I'm going to now ask you some questions uh, that I ask of many of my guests. Um, one of my favorites is called In the Vault. And I, I am asking for a time when you royally screwed up and <laughs> were just, it was awful at the time. But in retrospect, you learned from it and maybe are even a little bit glad that it happened. Royally screwed up. <laughs> uh, I think for me, and I can't get into the details without breaching privilege, um, but I think for me, what I remember is not trusting my instinct. Hmm. Uh, there was an incident uh, that I can't get into uh, involving the state where there was a determination or a recommendation advanced to me. And I knew instinctively that didn't sound right, didn't feel right, but there was no time. And as a result, they needed a response quickly. And I provided, and I simply either acquiesced or says, you know, I'll defer to you given that you've spent enough time and you, you need, we need to advance this quickly. And in hindsight, uh, that decision was the wrong decision. Uh, and I knew that it was the wrong decision for two reasons. The person asking the question, I didn't have full confidence in. And my instinct told me that they were not making the most informed decision. And that is something that I look back on as a lesson that I utilize to today. I always, 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 always trust my instincts. Um, and it helps guide me when I make decisions. And it also helps guide me when others are looking to make recommendations 
uh, that will ultimately turn into decisions either for the organization or for myself. Um, and for me, it was a huge lesson. Always trust your internal compass because uh, you see and hear things that others don't. And that is the value that you bring to the table. When you ignore that, uh, you're effectively undermining your own leadership. Yeah. Yeah. The gut is a real indicator uh, that we've, we've been told to, you know, sometimes disregard if we can think our way past it, but we should <laughs> not do that. It is, it is often the most accurate uh, part of our uh, being. Um, this is my last question for you. Um, I have this dream of building a hall of fame to staffers and inside e erecting statues to the people who are nominated by people I interview. So you've worked with a lot of staffers and I'd love if you could give me a nominee for my future staffer hall of fame. Oh my God. That is not a fair question. <laughs> In what I know. capacity? Uh, you uh, know, somebody, somebody who you worked with and observed and just thought like they represent the best of what it means to be a staffer. And this can be any level, any context, um, but you can point to them and say, they are great and I'd want to work with them at any time in any way. Okay. Uh, like the lawyer that I am, I will try to... So if it's someone that I supervised, I would say Sandy Toll. Uh, Sandy Toll was the first assistant counsel when I was counsel. Uh, she reported directly to me. She is now general counsel for uh, a health-based organization. Um, and I would say Sandy Toll. And why, what, what did she, like, what were the qualities that just made her exemplary? She anticipated my next moves before I could anticipate them, which is what's one of the most important skills. Uh, after working with the governor for such a long time, you have to be five or six steps ahead of him uh, based on certainly his practice, his expectations. You have to anticipate the question before the question is asked. And you also have to understand and appreciate the landmines, um, which is an extraordinary skill to have. Uh, and I think Sandy Toll would be one person that is an extraordinary staffer. Another would be Robert Mojica, who is the finance director, the director of budget for the state, uh, who I think is incredibly well-skilled. And um, he was impressive. Uh, but it, as it relates to someone who reported to me, I would say Stan, Sandy Toll. Great. Thank you. I'll put them both in. Why not? I'll get enough bronze for two statues. <laughs> <laughs> Alfonso, I cannot thank you enough uh, for making time uh, for us today. I could talk to you all day. Um, this has just been a really um, heartwarming and illuminating conversation for me. And I want to thank you for it. Thank you. Thank you, Jim. Thank you for having me. Appreciate it. Anytime. Well, friends, I can smell the jet fumes at National Airport, which means another episode of Staffer is adjourned. I want to thank you all for listening to the only show created for and about the people who work in government and politics at any level. I do have a quick favor to ask. Please follow, subscribe, and like the show on all of your favorite podcast platforms. Positive reviews are everything in this business, I'm told. And please make sure to sign up for episode alerts at staffershow.com and check out Staffer Show on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and LinkedIn. Thanks all.